This is episode 171 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm climate and energy journalist Markham Hislop. Uh, today we're going to be dealing with a very it's a technical is it's a technical issue. It's the unfunded liabilities on the conventional oil and gas part of the industry in Alberta. And just as a little hook to get you interested, we're probably talking about unfunded liabilities. That means that the companies that are responsible for those wells or were have not put any money aside for them. There's no money available uh, to uh, to reclaim and remediate those assets. So here's the number, $145 billion. That's a big number. And keep in mind that that's roughly half of all of the oil and gas unfunded liabilities in Alberta. I use the figure of $300 billion. And I think that's that's a fair number to use. And this is a, it's one of, one of three things is going to happen. And I should point out that, that Energy Media is in the process of doing a multi-part investigative report on the Alberta Energy Regulator and these unfunded liabilities. And it's called Unethical Oil, Alberta's Secret Shame. So part one is already up on the website. You can see it there. And part two is about conventional oil and gas production. Part three will be about the unfunded liabilities in the oil sands in the tailings pond. Part four will be how does the Alberta Energy Regulator work or not work? Because it's a pretty dysfunctional regulator, I think, is the consensus view. And then we'll have a couple more after that uh, uh, as we go along. So to join me today for this podcast, I'm going to talk to Drew Uchuk, who is a staff lawyer at the Public Interest Law Clinic, University of Calgary. I've interviewed him many times before. Welcome to the interview, Drew. Thanks for having me on again. And I'm going to be talking to Mark Dorn of the Polluter Pay Federation, who is an expert on administrative law and has lots of practical hands-on experience working with landowners and is one himself. So welcome to the interview, Mark. Thanks for having me, Mark. So look, this is, we're going to get into some numbers. We're going to get into some stuff that is going to be like, you know, I've dealt, I've interviewed you guys so many times before I couldn't, I don't even remember. And yet I still find it technical and a little confusing. And really what I want to do is clarify for everyone the, what we're talking about, what those unfunded liabilities are and what the problems with them are and, and to attach some numbers to them. So first of all, let's talk about the stuff that isn't a problem. Uh, We've got 4,064, uh, 4, 239 total oil and gas wells in Alberta, of which 155,984 are active or producing. So those we could take those wells out of that big number, and I suppose then we wind up with uh, just under 300,000. So let's talk about the wells that aren't a problem. The first ones are abandoned and sealed wells that are reclamation exempt. There's 36,675 of those. And I should mention that this information comes from the Alberta Energy Regulators website. So it's up-to-date data. Thanks, Mark, for, for finding this for us. So, Mark, what is an abandoned sealed well reclamation exempt? 
most of those wells would be wells that are sealed below surface, uh, according to Alberta Energy Regulator Directive 020, and probably are on a multi-well pad or a site that has more than one well. So so if the, the it's the last well off that's abandoned on the site, that operator, that licensee would be uh, normally responsible to clean up the site. So there could be other reasons to, to be reclamation exempt, but that would be the the lion's share, in my opinion, of those wells. Okay, hang on a second. They're reclamation exempt because the reclamation's been done already. No, it's because it's a it's a it's a site that's being used that hosts a number of wells on one site, and so when one well gets abandoned, the site is still in use. So there's no point in reclaiming it at oh. that point. So the site would be continuing to be in use for the additional well or wells on that site. There could be two, there could be 10, there could be six, etc. So the last well off, then it would be reclaimed after the last well on that site is uh, is abandoned. So site's a bit of a misnomer. They call them multi-well pads. Right. And and so just for, for listeners who don't know, you might have a big a big pad uh, that gets laid down and then multiple wells on that pad. So, Mark, uh, if I understand this correctly, let's say you had three wells on that pad and you took one out of commission, it would be sealed, but the site hasn't been reclaimed yet until the other two are also sealed and then the site reclaimed. That's exactly right. So they would, the licensee of the well that's being plugged would just say, it's reclamation exempt for my well because they're still using the site and it'll be reclaimed at a later date. What about wells? I understand that that uh, very often you drill a well bore, but then you have laterals at the bottom that come off. So you might have three laterals, you might have six laterals, and each one of the laterals has actually got a well a well number. So does that mean when under this category, does that mean that all those laterals are also been sealed? As uh, it's it's possible just to abandon one of those laterals, uh, but normally the, there would be all of the laterals that would be abandoned. Um, probably not going to produce the less all those laterals are in the same formation. They're probably not necessarily all producing at the same time. Some might get, some of those laterals might get abandoned right when they're drilled because they just weren't economically viable. So, you know, we're getting pretty far off in the weeds, but those, I don't think they count all those. Well, they're more or less talking about single wellheads when they talk about these numbers of active wells that are in the 155,000 range would be my interpretation. Right. And one of the reasons I wanted to get into the, the weeds a little bit on this one, and we'll do it maybe a little bit on some of the others is just to give listeners a sense of the complexity of this. Like this is not a, a simple problem to figure out even just to get the numbers right. Yeah, unless you have some understanding of how oil wells are drilled and operated and even even surface leases and other right of entry orders, uh, you know, instruments, legal instruments that grant surface rights. And I can assure you that on these multi-well pads, it's it's often not done properly. So it's actually quite complicated, yes. And uh, the fact that we have surface rights and mineral rights in Alberta, and there can be different combinations of those, makes the whole thing rather complex to understand indeed. 
Right. And which which means that resolving this and getting eventually cleaning up all the unfunded liabilities just gets more complex. OK, well, let's go on to abandon and site reclaim. So, Drew, what are we talking about here? Is this are these ninety six thousand five hundred and sixty two well sites? They are properly abandoned and the site has been reclaimed and a site reclamation has been issued by the Alberta Energy Regulator. Is that what we're talking about? Yes. So abandoned and site reclaimed, the whole closure process is finished. Uh, it's sealed, it's cut, it's closed below surface, and then any contamination is removed and vegetation, whatever there was, the equivalent land uh, use or equivalent land capability, I forget the exact term, is restored. So those should be the ones that really aren't a problem at all anymore should be I'll note because there's a couple concerns about that some of them might have been certified without having any a lots of them actually were certified without having any AER staff check them over so in a couple of years some of those will be uncertified when they get checked and the other issue is uh, Kevin Timoni's concern that really some of that isn't working anyways, and that even some of the certified sites are going to show long-term impacts to the ability to grow crops. Right. So there's a couple of things to unpack here. And one of them is the extent to which we can trust the AER's reclamation certificate. And the reason I bring this up is because there is a, I believe it's gone public, but I'm still not going to mention the engineer's name uh, just in case it hasn't. But there was a young engineer at a uh, an oil company who managed. She figured out how to game the L, the AER's computer system, and so she was getting uh, reclamation certificates for wells that were still in production. And of course, eventually, and not only that, she was holding seminars inside the company uh, to teach her the her colleagues how to do it. And eventually, of course, she got caught. But I uh, and uh, and those reclamation certificates would have presumably been reversed. But nevertheless, if one person figured it out, engineers are clever people. I got you know I have a lot of respect for engineers. They're clever people. So if she figured it out, somebody else figured it out. And you know, Drew, can we can we trust the how 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 much should we trust these numbers? Uh, and you know, and what's your take on how many might have been gamed? uh given we have at least one example it's pretty common for reclamation certificates to get uh overturned uh you see a couple yeah a few come up every week on the AER compliance dashboard uh but i have no way of estimating how many of those are within that number. I, I don't know how many of them will, would ultimately be overturned. Mark might have some kind of statistic on that, but I can't remember. So I, I have no idea. Mark, uh, do you have an opinion on that? Yeah, well, I've read the Auditor General's report, which was quite shocking in terms of reclamation certificates. Um, but I've also gone through the reclamation certificate in my own family's land, and uh, and I did a, what's called a regulatory appeal of the issuance of that reclamation certificate. So there was a hearing preceding AR proceeding 411. Um, 
you know, there was clearly site contamination left. They clearly did not reclaim the land. It was an urban site, so it gets much more complicated. But uh, the, the reclamation certificate was upheld nonetheless. But in the process, what came out is that the AR's one-stop system was, as admitted by the AR in the hearing, was broken. And uh, the, the, you can read about that in the published decision. So the, the AR field inspector admitted under oath, under cross-examination by me, that they knew that the system wasn't working and that we were not the first ones to, you know, this was not the first case where it was discovered and they let it go uh, knowingly, knowing that the computer system's not working. And I would add that One Stop issues far more than reclamation certificates. It issues almost all the well licenses, almost all the pipeline licenses. Um, this is a mind-boggling thing, I'm telling you. Um, there's about 60,000 decisions made per year through the One Stop system, and there's hardly any hearings. Some years, there's no hearings. So, they potentially could all be flawed. Uh, we just don't know. Uh, there needs to be a serious investigation into um, how long this one-stop computer system had a bug in it and uh, why they didn't tell anyone. I contacted the ministers in charge at the time. Uh, I never heard back from them. I'd let them know that the – and it's and it's clearly uh, stated in decision number um, – it's 22002ABAER002 dated June 6th last year. And uh, from paragraph 215 on, anyone can read about it. Drew, can you give us just a brief overview of what One Stop is? Because there'll be a, a lot of the listeners won't have, uh, you know, won't come from an oil and gas background and understand what that is. So I can I, I can sort of explain One Stop. I, I know I still have to do more work to fully understand exactly when it gets off the ground and gets that name because it it sort of i think pre-existed the name one stop but the idea was that the regulator was going to have a computer system to automatically process license applications and reclamation certificate applications but i don't i don't think it's any kind of artificial intelligence or anything all it is is a system that if the company employee checks the boxes that says that there's nothing wrong with this application it's just automatically approved. And sometimes a human AER employee will look those over, but most of the time they won't. They just rely on the company honestly describing the whole situation, which means a lot of things get past one stop uh, before anyone notices that there was something wrong. It's been approved for quite a while. In addition to that, one stop has computer bugs, as Mark was saying, where it just it, things are changed in one part of one stop and then it doesn't show up in other parts because it's it's just a buggy computer system. I, I should I'll interject here uh, to note that uh, as part of the unethical oil part one uh, article, I interviewed one of the two people that I gave I granted anonymity to. And this person was a senior executive uh, in the uh, Alberta Energy Regulator, they worked, had direct knowledge of the design and function of One Stop and of all of the computer systems and, and how data was was managed inside the regulator. It's a mess. 
it's it's a cobbled they've cobbled together different databases and different softwares and systems over the years and trying to connect them and make them work uh it's never worked and he, i you know that person gave me example after example of the problems that they were grappling with back then and the fact that the eight the regulator because it was funded by the the industry which always wanted to you know cut expenses not add expenses they never wanted to spend the money to to do the job properly they were always skimping on it and therefore whenever you know one anything that comes up with one stop like you know the issuing of reclamation certificates i just after that interview i'm deeply skeptical because one stop is just a, as you say, a very buggy, uh, buggy system that doesn't work a lot of times. It doesn't work the way it's supposed to. Okay. To return to that story of the engineer who found a way to slip past stuff one stuff past one stop, I don't think that was a complicated, like technical bug. I think the the engineer just realized, hey, you can lie to this thing, and it has no way to figure it out. And I think that's all they had to do. You can just lie to this thing, and it won't notice. Okay, so that means that the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of oil companies were relying on them to all be honest. Yes. And we're relying on them to be honest. Uh, you know, it's one thing when you talk to the big companies. Uh, and and Mark, you probably have a different perspective on this, but I'll just tell you what they tell me is, is they say, look, uh, reclamation of wells, you know, this is important to us. We understand part of our, it's our, it's part of our reputation. And, and so we take it seriously. We put resources in, we, we have a program, we have staff, all of that stuff. It's, it's, and so I not being as experienced, you know, someone like Mark, I would say, okay, but I know what the little guys are doing. The little guys are under tremendous financial stress. They are trying to cut corners all over the place. I mean, so many of them have failed since 19, for instance, 2014. So if there's anybody that's likely to, to game the system the way that engineer did, it seems to me it would be the companies under stress. Is that a, a and there's lots of them, lots and lots and lots of them. Is that a fair way to look at it, Mark? I'm not so sure that that we can do it in a small company, large company, medium basis. I've dealt with these companies a lot. Uh, I deal with some pretty big ones. Um, they know how to game the system very well, and they're certainly not afraid to do it. Here's what happens when you're uh, on the other side of it, when you're the landowner that's trying to protect your land value, trying to make sure that that um, the site's actually clean and this is not going to, the, you know, the, the work's been done and the, the issuance of this certificate isn't going to cause you a problem at a bank or to subdivide your land or something like that, they lawyer up. Uh, so... You know, at that point in time, you're really not getting necessarily complete information or knowing exactly what's what's occurring all the way through. So, uh, you know, you get three inches thick worth of paper. Uh, but in my case, you know, there was clearly contamination. They upheld the certificate anyway. You, know, you have to do remove. You have to remove the road to get a reclamation certificate. They didn't. They got one anyway. These certificates mean nothing now in Alberta. Let's be clear. They just don't mean a thing because once you appeal them in front of hearing commissioners and they say that they have the discretion to ignore the law, well, then the system's absolutely gone in the tank. It's it's finished. It doesn't really matter what occurs because because you know. 
you're, unless you're willing to take it to the appeal court, and in this case, the expense wasn't didn't didn't justify it, so we didn't. But um, unless people are going to take it to the appeal court or something, it's just going to continue to be broken. Uh, an important point that I want to make here is that, and this came out of interviews with Drew. It came out of interviews with his colleague, uh, Professor Martin Olashinsky, is a law environmental law prof at the University of Calgary. Uh, and that is, and then, and of course, my interview with Mark earlier, where we talked about the fact that the the policies, the Alberta government's policies, the legislation and the regulations are often considered to be world class. But, and this is a big but, there is more discretion built into the Alberta legislation and regulations than probably any other you know, comparable jurisdiction anywhere on the planet. And what that means is exactly what Mark said, is that it, whether it's the staff at the top, the CEO, or it's a field inspector, or it's a subject matter expert, they all have total discretion to make decisions about whether the rules are followed. So quite often, you know, what is the rule? In Norway, a rule is a rule. In Alberta, I don't know, what do you need the rule to be? And so the rule can be bent and it can be bent a lot. And so, you know, Mark, the, the road on to the well site on Mark's family's property didn't get reclaimed. Discretion is exercised and, and, and that means nothing. Contaminated soil is there, should have been removed, wasn't. Discretion is exercised and that just gets ignored and the reclamation certificate gets held up. And this happens all the time. I don't know how many hundreds and thousands of times it happens, but I've interviewed AER, former AER employees, and it's this is just standard operating procedure, SOP, as they say in the industry, within the regulator. And I think that's an important context point for, for listeners is, you know, they're probably sitting there going, well, you know, this is a government agency, a quasi-government agency. It's, uh, you know, how could... You know, rules are rules, right? They, they can't bend the rules like that. Yes, they can bend the rules like that. The system is set up to allow them and, in fact, encourage them to bend the rules like that to make it work. Now, so let's go on to the wells that are a problem. And there are two of them, two types of wells. Uh, abandoned, which is sealed, uh, but the site is not reclaimed. So there's 90,991 90, of those. So what is a, a a sealed a sealed well but site not reclaimed? What does that mean, Mark? Oh, that simply means that the well is no longer um, the well's been abandoned, as you said, sealed, and that the site reclamation is either in progress or hasn't started yet. So there's no there is uh, uh, if there's a contaminated soil that's called remediations required that should occur right away. But reclamation work, which is the final site restoration. Uh, returning it back to a near equivalent um, capability like Drew mentioned at the start, there's no time limit on that. So that that could take a long time. So it could mean the sites are contaminated. It could mean that they just simply would prefer to pay the surface lease uh, compensation annually. Uh, most sites get compensated annually uh, because it's cheaper than reclaiming the site. So, um, but I would say that 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 it's a financial reason uh, you know in 2017 i went to six days of liability management sessions i asked the question of of epac the the small uh, 
owner and I said, you know, you guys complain. They said that they, they were complaining that their three big expenses were royalties, uh, landowner payments and municipal taxes. So I said, why don't you clean up your sites and get a record and then you can stop paying taxes and stop paying uh, annual compensation. And their answer was simple. We don't have any money. So I would say the vast majority of these sites are probably in small companies' hands. We know there's about 56,000 of them right now where the operators have no assets whatsoever. So that's almost half. <laughs> so um, a lot of those could be inactive sites. But I would say that by far, I would venture a guess that by far the main reason that sites are sitting abandoned but not reclaimed is lack of funds on behalf of the well licensee. Now, Mark brought up an interesting point, point Drew, and, and that is that there is no legislative or regulatory requirement to to reclaim a site within a, partic a particular time. I don't know, but looking at, at this as an outsider, that's crazy. Uh, is that unusual? Yes. Well, uh, that's, that's very, very weird. That's one of Alberta's core mistakes that somehow they thought that the LLR program uh, was going to fill in for timelines. Now we do have the mandatory spend, which has this dubious percentage requirement of your estimated liability, which is estimated wrong. It's estimated too low. I don't know why they won't fix it, but they still won't fix it. Uh, so we have that at least now since 2021 or 2022 i can't remember when it really oh so it's maybe back. a year or two old yeah it's it's pretty much brand new um i think we've had two years of its operation and i think it's up to 700 million this year i don't have it in front of me 730 730 perfect thank you mark so we have that at least now but for most of albertan history no timelines on abandonment no timelines on reclamation big mistake Okay, so there's 91,000 of these, and we know they're plugged, but we have no idea, you know, what this, what's on the site, you know, whether it's contaminated soil. And I, I want to point out here, uh, uh, Mark had Mark's family had this problem, but I interviewed Dwight Popovich, who's with the also with the Polluter Pay Federation, and uh, he wants to he's he's you know ready to retire. He wants to sell uh, some his land, and it has. Uh, an abandoned well on it. There's no owner. There's there's nobody to to clean it up, and uh, he can't sell it. Nobody will buy it from him because they don't want the environmental liabilities that are attached to it. He can't get. Nobody could get financing if they did want to buy it. And this is the problem. How many? I, I saw an estimate uh, in one of the AER documents. I think it might have been uh, you know twenty thousand, ten thousand, twenty thousand. Farmers, I don't know if there's even that many in Alberta. There was thousands and thousands and thousands of farmers who are in this position, and they may not be, they sh they're not making a lot of noise about it, but you know, eventually they're going to want to sell that land or pass it on to their, and they won't be able to because of these in environmental liabilities. Okay, uh, the next category here is inactive or suspended wells. These are basically, as I understand it, just well, hang on a second. Drew, is there an owner attached to this category of well? Uh, uh, here. So I, I have to introduce a, a split in two kinds of questions. Uh, 
One is that these are describing the physical conditions of the sites. So these numbers describe if you go to the site, what will you find? Will you find a well that's turned on? Will you find a well that's turned off? Will you find one that's sealed and capped? Will you find a site that's totally reclaimed? Uh, and then the different question of who's legally responsible for site closure is separate from these categorizations. Uh, so there might be inactive wells that are orphans in the real sense that they are the responsibility of the Orphan Well Association, but they would be listed as inactive because they haven't been abandoned yet. Nothing's happened. Uh, so right. for okay. most so of these, I would think there's, there is still an owner who is responsible, legally responsible to handle it. Some of them might be with the OWA. Okay. We'll get to the Orphan Well Association in a bit. Uh, but Mark, 82,635 inactive or suspended wells, even if there is a legal owner attached to it, isn't it possible, isn't it likely that either A, that owner has gone bankrupt, the company has gone bankrupt, or they're essentially broke, like, you know, the, the company that you mentioned, and, and or you were talking about EPAC, which is the uh, the uh, trade association for the small and medium-sized producers. I mean, e the EPAC representative flat out said that their members are broke. They haven't got any money to spend on this stuff. So even if there's a legal owner attached to it, what does that really mean? Well, I, you know, I think that there's, you know, the largest holder of licenses in the province is a big company that definitely has lots and lots and lots of inactive wells. So, uh, I, you know, I think we're, we've got to divide these inactive wells up um, into it's, it's really hard to say that most of them are held by this type of company or that type of company. Uh, we know that there's about, you know, 9,800 wells or so, 10,000 maybe have gone through the Orphan Well Association. Um, most of those that Orphan Well Association tends to seal those wells fairly quickly and then the site reclamation gets delayed. So um, it's difficult to say, uh, but you know, I think that the, that the reason for all companies leaving these wells inactive are that um, they just simply don't want to incur the the cost. And, uh, you know, I would add here that, you know, there's no, there's no um, timelines in Alberta for this, but, but the overlooked portion of liability management, the overlooked part of polluter pay is landowner payments. So the, this is the, the, the incentive to get rid of your well in Alberta is supposed to be to reduce those payments. And, you know, in my view, payments should be going up to landowners uh, to, to balance this off. And so I think that if we, Alberta has this very complicated integrated scheme that involves landowner compensation as a big part of polluter pay. And if we only look at liability management, we forget about landowners and we forget about annual compensation. We've forgotten about a big piece of it. So, so that's, that's what I would say. So, so I think that if we properly viewed the statutory scheme as a whole, which is very hard to do, and properly have all these boards working together like they're really supposed to, um, you know, things would, would work much better. But I, but I don't have much hope that that 
can ever happen as it was designed to happen. In okay, hang on. So I, I talked to Paul McLaughlin, who's the uh, head of the Rural Municipalities Association, and he flagged surface pay, uh, landowner surface rights payments. So that's the, you know, a couple thousand, three thousand, whatever dollars a year that the oil company pays to the landowner, farmer, whatever, whoever owns it, uh, in return for having their well site on that on that property. And, and McLaughlin made the point that oil companies have just stopped paying. So well, if you some have. Well, okay, but hang on a second. Let me finish my thought. But the point here is that if the system is designed to put pressure on the companies to reclaim because they have to pay, uh, you know, make payments to the landowners uh, and they have to make other payments, but then they don't pay the landowners and they don't pay their municipal taxes, then where's the pressure gone? The system well, is, let's be, says, says yeah, failed. Let's be clear that if the landowner isn't paid a rate of compensation or an amount, there is a remedy for the landowner, uh, unlike the municipalities. So they can apply to the surface, the former Surface Rights Board, now the Land and Property Rights Tribunal, which acts more or less as a collection agency under Section 36 of the Surface Rights Act. And so the tribunal will order that operator, if it exists, to pay. And they will say, pay up. They'll give them 30 to 60 days. And they say, if you do not pay, your right to your surface right of entry will terminate. So now landowners can do that on their own. They don't have to wait for the, uh, they don't have to, you know, the problem has been is that there's so many applications at the surface rights board, it takes five years for them to get through the system. So now they've they've kind of gotten rid of that backlog. You only have to wait a year, a year and a half or so. But the point is, is that, that you can't avoid, you can't not pay a surface owner and get away with it unless you've, gone into bankruptcy and not emerged. And in that case, the um, tribunal orders the Minister of Environment to pay the landowner until there's a reclamation certificate. It's a yearly filing. So now this is getting expensive. Once we get into talking about delays on orphan wells, uh, you know, it's probably costing 30 to 60 million taxpayers right now to pay landowners for this big backlog of sites that aren't being reclaimed that are in the Orphan Well Association's care and custody. And my point is that we should be, all of this should be coming out of the Orphan Fund through a legislative change so that uh, the, the taxpayer, you know, if we fail to uh, properly levy the Orphan Well Fund, then taxpayers are paying landowners for a long time on behalf of, of uh, delinquent oil companies. And that's contrary to polluter pay. Yes, indeed it is, and it and it makes my point that it takes the pressure off the the oil companies to do what they're supposed to do, because now somebody else is paying what they're supposed to be paying. Yeah, at that point they would they would not have entry to the site though, so they don't care if it's if it's a if it's a site that's not not economically productive. They wouldn't care, uh, you know. Uh, okay. Oh, These okay. are difficult well, problems, uh, but but you know they have been thought through. And if we only if we only look at part of the system, then the the other parts of it are automatically going to break down. I guess is what I'm saying. Okay, fair enough. Now look, let's talk about the unfunded liability. So at this point, according to the Alberta Energy Regulator, and these numbers were taken 
from a 2018 PowerPoint presentation that I believe it was the National Observer and CTV. They did a joint investigation and they came across this PowerPoint. So as of 2018, which is like five years ago, you know, cost to, to do this stuff goes up. But at that time, to, to uh, reclaim all of the unfunded wells was $100 billion. The facilities and other kinds of you know plants and so on that were associated with, with those wells, $30 billion. And then we just talked about $15 billion. And so I guess, uh, what is the polluter pay principle? And I'll maybe... I've heard Mark to describe this many times, but Drew, I'll throw this over to you. So what polluter pay principle, these people, they, the companies are required under law, under legislation to pay for that. There's no way of getting around it, right? Supposedly. Uh, rather than a legal rule, I would say the polluter pays principle is supposed to be a policy, uh, a policy goal. And the point of the polluter pays principle is that you make sure the company pays its own externalities so that it's not able to dump its costs onto someone else. So it, it applies in all polluting industries of any kind of pollution, that a person who produces pollution or damage to the public or to anybody else has to recapture that cost in their business model. Because if you don't do that, people can operate businesses that produce more loss than profit but they don't take the loss. They just give it to somebody else. Uh, so if your system isn't meeting that goal of polluter pays, the polluter pays principle, and it's not meeting that policy objective, what you're getting is a system where you're encouraging more development that is causing more losses than profit, but dumping those losses on someone else. Right. So it's supposed to be protected by Alberta law. Dubious, very dubious that it is. Well, I want to ask you a question uh, because you did a freedom of information uh, request to the Alberta Energy Regulator. You got back a thousand pages. You shared them with me. So thank you for that. But one of the things documents in there that you and I have discussed is from 1995. And it talks about there being 30,000 at that time uh, abandoned wells. And, and there's information in there about what's called liability dumping. Can you exp explain to, to the listeners what liability dumping is and how it worked? Uh, so what's funny about liability dumping is that basically the first time I talked to a rural Albertan about oil and gas, the very first thing they told me was a quick explanation of what liability dumping is, because they all know. They're extremely familiar with this because it happened in their backyard. Um, but the AER has also been aware of this since at least 1995 that the large companies who the AER initially assumed would run the sites, run them until they ran out of oil and gas, then pay to close them, seal, abandon, and reclaim them and get the certificate. And the whole process would happen with one company. But that doesn't happen at all. The AER is wrong about what happens. The large company on their internal books, when they can see that the well is on a downward slide, in profitability, and it's going to become more of a liability in the next couple of years than it is a benefit, which sell it to somebody else who either in different cases, there were definitely instances of both, never meant to pay for closure and was running what, what I would be willing to say is a kind of scam. 
and people who just weren't very good at accounting and didn't realize what was happening to them and ended up holding wells that had within a couple of years of operating them more liabilities than value. Uh, and the large company under the Al under the Albertan setup for liabilities had escaped. They no longer owed anything for those liabilities. It was now at the small company, except for, and I'm sure Mark would add this if I didn't say it, at the backstop of that is the Orphan Well Association, which puts the big company back on the hook. Right. Okay. Uh, we'll get to the Orphan Well Association in there. I think I've said that the second or third time now. Sorry. But in, in this particular case, um, the documents that you got from the AER, if I remember the numbers correctly, so there were 30,000 of them in Band of Wells in, in 1995. And there was a, a connection made with the junior producers, which, you know, in, in Alberta always had a reputation as being the wildcatters. You know, there'd be, there'd be three or four man teams. There'd be like a CEO and a geologist and a CFO and, a, and a, an engineer. And they would they would get some money from friends and family and they'd go out and they'd lease some land and they'd sink some wells and they'd, they'd build up this little company and then they sell it off to the big guys and then they go do it all over again. That's the, that's the, the myth. That's the, the narrative. But if I remember correctly, the, the juniors actually grew from around 60 or 70 to about 700 by 1995 because they were the ones buying these stripper wells, these low producing wells. And, and that's, in fact, how the sector grew to be as large as it did. Am I rem remembering that correctly? That is that is I don't have the numbers in front of me, but that is exactly the story that the AAR was understanding of what was going on in the industry. Uh, okay. These companies were being mostly created by the large companies selling off their aging assets. Right. Okay. So, Mark, you're a landowner. You work with landowners. Give me the landowner's perspective of liability dumping. Well, the liability dumping is liability dumping. Landowners, um, I think they get worried as as it you know gets moved down the line. Um, you know, some of these companies that took over large fields um, from the bigger operators, they they had the the company that that originally took over put up bonds so that they couldn't come back on them. But but most of them didn't, and and even those companies end up selling off to even smaller or more, um, you know, companies that, like you said, don't check things over or just don't necessarily don't know what they're doing, or frankly, you know, you know, the, I, uh, there's one guy I know that bought a bunch of wells, and he, you know, you can go out and ride around with them, and he, he you say, oh, well, you know, we went to 100 wells today. Uh, most of them are just marginal, one to five barrels a day. You know, when will you clean these up? I'm not going to clean them up. Like he just openly say that he's not going to clean them up. So. Um, I, I think we're going to see some pushback on this. Uh, we already are. Um, when Shell tried to transfer its licenses to Little Pierre a day, uh, two majors who pay into the orphan fund more than anybody else do, they they objected. They filed statement of concern. We're going to see more and more of this. Um, now that it's come time to pay the piper, you know, let's be clear that industry asked for the orphan well system <laughs> that we have in the 90s and, and they got what they asked for but now that it's becoming expensive 
they want to push back and change things. So um, I think that we can't, it's too late. Uh, right. But, you know, so the, the, the landowners, you know, Landowners know a lot less than you might think about the system. What they're concerned about is being paid. Most landowners won't complain um, until they're not paid. And because they can recover from the taxpayer their rate of annual compensation, there's very few that complain. Because, But, but it's the taxpayer that needs to know because they're the ones picking up the bill. So uh, right. I can assure you that if they couldn't recover it from the taxpayer, there'd be big rumblings out there. And um, so, you know, just like the municipal tax people are complaining because they don't really have a way to, to recover. Uh, they don't have a remedy yet like landowners do. So Right. Uh, now, Drew, I want to ask you a question about companies that failed, because I think, you know, everybody knows that uh, in late 2014, the Saudi Arabia opened up the uh, the oil taps and flooded the market and prices crashed. And, you know, starting in November, December of 2014 and 2015 was terrible for Alberta and 2016 was pretty was pretty bad. And then finally, in 2017, things began to improve. So. The junior sector at that time was really stressed. I mean, they just don't have the financial resources to ride out, you know, extended tough times. And then there was a pipeline leak and prices went down again. And 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 then the COVID came along in, in, in early 2020 and then prices crashed again. And so the sector now we're seeing, and I think the AR was talking about this, we're, not only we're seeing almost all of the juniors are gone, but the intermediates are starting to fail because of this, you know, the price, price crashes. And that, so that is, is, I guess, partly responsible for the situation we find ourselves in. So a combination of liability dumping, and then these failures due to hard economic times. What's your take on that? Uh, I see those as being connected. The, the large intermediates that fail are, produced by liability dumping is is what it looks like you can't know that without having access to a bunch of internal corporate records you can't get but when you look at the numbers it's hard to see other ways that that happened uh so it's it's the failures of the intermediates that also really startled the industry who paid the orphan well association i think when they set it up they believed they would be paying for a few juniors who failed every, a few very small juniors per year. And then when they see one of these intermediates come through and it suddenly pours thousands of wells on them, that's when they realized that, that something wasn't working as they had hoped. Uh, they should have realized that sooner. Right. Okay. Now we're going to talk about the Orphan Well Association. Now, Mark, you spend a lot of time thinking about it and working in the, you know, uh, because you've been involved in other projects in, in addition to the Polluter Pay Federation. Tell us about how the Orphan Well got, uh, or, uh, Orphan Well Association got started and, and how it operates. Well, what I know about how it got started is just from reading documents similar to what Drew got that are that are documents from the time, but there's, there's in particular a, a document dated about 1991, where the head of the regulator gives a speech at the petroleum club to industry and says, look, you know, we, you know, we, 
you guys, we want to impose security deposits on you. We want to impose strict license transfer rules. And industry said, no, please don't. That'll impact investment. And so uh, we will look after uh, the failed wells of our industry members. And so that got codified into law no later than 2000. And so that's the history. Um, I think that... Uh, that you know we're operating the system on orphans in a fairly narrow interpretation of of you know the orphan fund which is part 11 of the oil and gas conservation act i think that that you know we could have numerous uh contractors getting rid of these wells we, the, the law calls for more than one outfit like the orphan well association it even calls for rules um, that that provincial cabinet can make to have someone other than the Alberta Energy Regulator name orphans, uh, if you know. So you know, if the AR can't get the job done, someone else needs to. In my submission, so this is the this is the citizen safety net. The Supreme Court, you know, they're not not certainly this, but the you know the Redwater case. Some of the judges in the lower courts discussed this, and they said the purpose of the orphan fund is to protect citizens, and then the what they call liability management at the AR, which is effectively when should we collect security and when shouldn't we? That's uh, the purpose of that is to prevent is to mitigate risks to the orphan fund. So so we we were ex we've always expected to have orphans. Um, Perhaps we should have less, uh, you know, but if if there are too many orphans, well, that's a problem for industry to take up with the uh, with the regulator, in my humble view, not citizens. Citizens should always be protected. And uh, that's clearly the overall intent of the law. And so let's, you know, let's just say we don't have all that many orphans yet. Um, there is some backlog, but there's a whole bunch coming. And, and we know that from the Narwhal's uh, Freedom of Information request just recently. There's about 56,000 coming. The time to tighten things up now is now, because if this gets <laughs> away from us, we got a really big problem. So we don't have, you know, I say we don't have an orphan problem really yet in Alberta in terms of from the lens or from the point of view of a citizen. But it's looming, and the signs are we're going to have a really big one. So, if we nip it in the bud, we can prevent the problem. And um, so, hey, when the last oil company goes down, if there's still some wells left, well, then the citizens might have to clean them up. But uh, we're a long ways away from that, in my submission. Okay, Drew, um, Mark threw out the number of fifty-six thousand potential orphans coming down the pipeline, as it were, and. With all of these wells, like the 82,000 that are inactive or suspended, the 91,000 that the site's not reclaimed, that's where those 56,000 came from. And that they're supposed to eventually be, be declared orphans or help us understand how this. So I'll, I'll just check with Mark. He, I think he's talking about the number out of the Narwhal FOIP documents that the internal I can't remember if it's the OW, the AER was predicting they were going to see an a avalanche of 56,000. That's so correct, Drew. But, you know, you know, those reports too. We have, we have all these wells that, that have 
you know, something that's going to be a dinosaur soon called LLR, but people, they have LLR less than one, which means they're effectively insolvent. And a huge portion of those, like, I think there's something like 224 companies own some 30,000 wells and, and collectively they got something like $1,600 of assets. Well, you know, I don't <laughs> care. Uh, you know, the, the, what we call the liability reduction program, which is this, this forced spend that we're supposed to increase every year. You know, I, if I'm the regulator and I tell a broke company that doesn't even have any employees or an office or money that you got to spend uh, your target this year and they don't have any money. Well, pretty, it's pretty clear that that's really not really going to work. So, uh, and for, for the, for the premier recently to say that, you know, we got to wait a year or two and see how this all turns out. Well, I think with, with respect to say, you know, a few hundred of those companies that don't have any money and don't have any employees. Well, I think we already know how that's going to turn out. Right. So uh, the only thing we could do perhaps under our star is sell some of those sites off to someone else for the credits and then and, and get things out of the orphan well fund and this is this is where the dangers come into it i think so but yes drew uh, to get back to it those are the sorts of numbers that i'm talking about we all know that there's at least 30,000 orphans coming down the chute okay uh, so we understand how the orphan well association is supposed to work and the in 2021, Premier uh, Danielle Smith, who was then a lobbyist for the Alberta Enterprise Group, uh, was lobbying the provincial government for a 20 billion dollar program called RSTAR, uh, where the taxpayer, the Alberta taxpayer, would pay, uh, provide credits uh, that would be applied against royalties, and they would be used to clean up some of these old old wells uh drew can you give us just a quick overview of what r star is uh it's been a little while since i read the initial document but it's um it proposes to extend the drilling tax credit to also apply to liability costs so that when a company pays to perform abandonment or reclamation uh they get a I can't remember if there was there was two different ideas, I think, that they had one version and they had a different version slightly later. They get either their actual cost or their estimated LLR liability cost of the work back through the spend credit, which then gives them a percentage of that money off their royalties. So right. it was in very simple, a complicated way to give them their a portion of their money back when they spend on these closure work. Okay. So basically it's a subsidy uh, to pay oil companies to clean up liabilities that they are legally required to pay themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It is, it is providing them some portion of public money to do, to perform right. the obligation they already have. Now, Mark, you've been very vocal about saying that the solution to this entire problem is to, is to enforce the orphan, uh, orphan fund uh, requirements, the legislation, the regulations, whatever. We have this system in place. Industry doesn't like it now because it's it's costing them a lot more money. There's an annual levy for the Orphan Well Association. It's I think it's up to, what, $126,000 or $130,000, or sorry, million dollars. And industry is griping about that. And your take 
is that no, they agreed to this system. Now they have to live with what they agreed to. The taxpayer should not come in and rescue them with our store or any other kind of subsidy or program. I have argued that the industry, because its its priorities are clearly spending money uh, elsewhere, has no intention to do any of that. I, I think that they are literally lining up to default on their liabilities and and have you know over a period of time have the taxpayer come in and have to have to pay for all of this and give me your take on that and explain your position about how the orphan fund should be used here well the the orphan fund is for certain specific things uh the, the word closure encompasses encompasses it it's to pay for suspension or sealing or remediation of sites or, or reclamation of sites limited to that. And so there's supposed to be a periodic it's done yearly levy uh, under the legislation where uh, the, the, the Alberta energy regulators to estimate the costs of that for all orphans and whatever shortfalls there were, et cetera, from the previous year and levy an amount that's, that's it estimates is reasonable to, to, handle whatever closure costs come through as to wells that are named orphans by the Alberta energy regulators. So what they're not supposed to do is what they're doing, which is to say, Hey, industry, how much do you think you'd like to kick in this year? Or, or, you know, Oh, orphan well association, what's your budget, uh, et cetera. So, you know, let's be clear that there's been quite a few loans to this, uh, or orphan well association right. and that has propelled work, but then you know, all that does is bring it forward and then delays work later because now they're paying the loan off in subsequent years. So, so let's, you know, let's be clear that the amounts that have been levied to date aren't sufficient to close the wells. And so, as I said earlier, the taxpayers being the brunt of that because if it takes 20 years, for example, to reclaim a site that would have been reclaimed in two years, had the levy been sufficient, uh, then the taxpayers paying the landowner for that extended period of time. And industry doesn't care about that because they're not the one picking up the tab. But I think if the taxpayer knew that they that they, that they were picking up the tab, they would insist that that the proper levy be charged. So yeah, I, I think that, you know, that's the system in a nutshell. And, you know, if the Orphan Well Association can't do the work, well, we can have lots more of those. So uh, that's that's basically what it is. Make sure we charge sufficient amount of money to close these sites in a reasonable period of time. There's always going to be the site that takes 20 years because it's contaminated or 10 years, uh, but most of them can be closed in a fairly reasonable period of time, but that's not happening at the Orpen Well Association. They run out, close most of the wells, uh, seal them, and the sites get left for years and years and years. Okay. I want to introduce a, a concept here that was uh, first came to my attention through Drew's colleague, uh, Professor Olashinsky. And he said, the problem here with R-Star, and it, we should point out that that was then, because of public opposition to R-Star, it was turned into a $100 million uh, uh, pilot project. And there's consultations going on as we speak you know, about this. We don't know the final rules yet. Nevertheless, the principle here is moral hazard. 
And the moral hazard here is that once the government steps in with R Star or this pilot project, whatever, whatever, and it pays uh, the costs that are legally belong to the industry. Now the question becomes: Why would the industry? Why would the industry pay for liabilities that it knows if it just waits long enough, the government will assume them? That's the moral hazard here, and it sets you know whether it's our star or this liability program, the pilot project sets that precedent, and it sets up the slippery slope where how do you say to industry the next time? No, we're not going to do it this time, and. That's the danger, Mark. Like I agree with you. That, you that's know. the danger, and uh, I would right. I would take it one step further because R star only applies to conventional um, wells because it's a royalty right. holiday. It extends something called C star, so it only applies to conventional oil royalties. It doesn't apply. There's nothing like the orphan fund for oil sands liabilities like tailing ponds, etc. So there is a supposed to be a mine security program that's. You know, so you know. Let's be clear that that when we're talking about our star and we're talking about the orphan fund, this only covers maybe a third of you know, a little over a quarter of the of the potential liabilities that are out there. But but yes, our uh, star. I look at it as just if if we do our star, it's opening the floodgates on the whole thing. Exactly. Whole, uh, 260, 300 billion, whatever you want to call it. You know, I hate getting hung up on the numbers. I, I Nobody can estimate how much it's going to cost to reclaim uh, an oil well site. One, And, you know, here's something else that no one thinks about. These wells will leak in future. There's lots of legacy wells out there that... You know, I went to liability management in 2017 and they said, oh, well, we're going to come up with a program for legacy wells. These are effectively orphans. But we're just saying, oh, you know, we're, if, if we deal with these legacy wells, then the orphan program is going to be too big. So, though, so now they're supposed to strike a panel. They're supposed to have struck a panel about legacy wells. Well, the, the people that are impacted by legacy wells, we at Pluter Pay Federation, we asked to be on that panel. I can assure you, representing urban landowners and marrying an urban landowner myself that when we go to try to develop these lands where there's older wells and there's no that the, the license is held by the wrong party guess what you're not allowed to touch a well as a landowner in alberta you can't develop your land because there's a legacy well there that doesn't have a licensee attached to it so the ar is supposed to say hey Either let's transfer the license to the appropriate party or let's put it in the care of the Orphan Well Association and it won't do either. So, okay. so urban landowners are really damaged from that. And so there's lots of stuff that's just pushed to the side and not dealt with at all. Exactly right. So here's the problem, because I'm sure listeners are asking themselves this question. Why don't the oil and gas companies want to pay? They're incredibly profitable. I think the, the, the figure last year for Alberta oil companies was $120 billion in profits, right? I mean, this is, and, and oil prices are supposed to stay at least healthy for the rest of this decade. And maybe we might see shortages and high prices again. Why don't they? So here's my, here's the point that I've been making in columns is a couple reasons. One of them is that the, there's tremendous uncertainty created by the, the energy transition. Investors are looking at this and they're saying, 
hey, you know, I don't know, you know, you're a sunset industry now, oil and gas. I don't know how long you're going to be around. You might be five years, might be 10 years, 20, who knows? Uh, but I don't, but now I'm really anxious about my capital that I have in your company. So I want you to give me back the maximum returns every year. So the oil sands companies, as an example, promise to investors, and they do this in their investor presentations, 75% of their free cash flow uh, and do that in the form of higher dividends and 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 uh, share buybacks. The other cost that they've got is emissions reductions because the provinces lacks on greenhouse gas emissions. The federal government is not. The federal government is set, it will bring in this year a problem or maybe early next year and an oil and gas emissions cap. And so companies are frantically trying to, you know, whether it's carbon capture and storage or solvent substitution, they are desperately trying to bring their emissions down because they know this cap is coming and there's going to be some heavy penalties with it. Where's the money for unfunded liabilities? There is none. That's why, you know, comp so looking out, emissions is not going away. Investor demands for their free cash flow is not going away. And so no wonder they're they're continue no wonder industry is pushing back. No wonder industry is trying to push everything as far back as they can because right now they don't want to pay any of this. And I'm I've come I've just come to the conclusion that R Star and all of their other efforts is that what they're simply doing is setting Alberta up to where they you know they're eventually uh oil demand will drop they they will become their businesses will fail or come close to it and they'll just walk away and go okay Alberta government so this is the consequence we're talking about this is the danger is that 300 billion dollars of unfunded liabilities could be dumped in the taxpayer's lap early 2030s mid 2030s late whatever but it's in the very foreseeable future and that's what we're going now mark let's start with you because i know you you grapple with this issue all the time a am i out to lunch here i i don't know i i can't predict the future all, all i'm saying is that we have to start making we have to start closing as many wells and cleaning up as many sites as we can because, uh, you know, I mean, Drew said this just the other day on Twitter. This is not an all or nothing proposition. It, it's, inter it's incremental. And so the more we get them to do, the less risk there is to the, to the taxpayer. But, you know, as far as I'm concerned, as long as we keep the orphan well, um, uh, the, the orphan levy, orphan fund, as long as we you know, manage that properly until the last oil company standing, they still have money to pay. That's the way I view it. And if they don't sure. like to pay, uh, goodbye. You can, you can walk away from your extremely profitable oil sands plant because guess what? We know how to run them. Don't let the butt, the door hit your butt on the way out is what I say. Here's the problem. Here's the problem in Alberta. It's the wild, wild west and the sheriff's usually out of town. The sheriff being the Alberta energy regulator. And when he's in town, he hardly ever takes his gun out of the holster. So yeah. um, that's the problem. Um, you know, we're seeing some drew just, you know, we sort of informed everybody that, that this outfit alpha bow 
gets a regulatory appeal, and I think they're entitled to a regulatory appeal. I think the more appeals we have, the better, because because we can examine some of these issues. But but here's the thing: landowners ask for regulatory appeals on serious stuff like life and death stuff all the time, and they don't get them. So, um, you know, we 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 need to have a real regulator that that makes decisions and writes them down so that they're properly appealable and they're challengeable and they get back to how this system was designed to work. And then, you know, the, 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 the more we get into the sunset years of this industry, the more work it's going to take to properly regulate it and manage, manage it so that it's not, that there is no more liability dumping from one industry player to another. That's fine, but it can't be dumped on the citizen. That's it. Last question, Drew, we'll let you wrap this up. Your take on the argument I made about the industry is essentially evading its responsibilities now so that eventually it will just dump them on all of those liabilities onto the taxpayer, the likelihood of that. Will the system allow it to, to them to do it? Uh, I'm going to answer one other question quickly as I try to roll that around in my head on the amount. The uh, the $260 billion I have been trying to get newer numbers from the AER. What I understand so far is that after the 260 million billion estimate was produced, uh, 2018, it was still in use in 2019, uh, that program was canceled. And the AER has told me that no estimate exists since then. So <laughs> there is no updated how number convenient. and I still don't know how reliable that one is. But that's that's still what we have to work with. That's all I've got. Um, and how likely is it to happen? Uh, it's not surprising at all to me that that's what industry would plan to do because that's what previous resource companies have done. That's what uh, gold miners did at Giant Mine. That's what coal miners have done all over Appalachia in the United States. That's what we've seen from oil and gas companies and other jurisdictions where their reserves have run dry because what's probably going to be closing parts of the Alberta oil and gas industry is, is reactions to climate change. But even without that, we would still have this problem just a little further down the road as the field runs dry. Uh, it's a non-renewable resource. It, it has an end. Um, so it's not surprising in any way that industry would plan to just run out the resource and leave a bill. But no one gets rich by paying money they don't have to. Um, right. And okay. I would say at this point, it's it doesn't look good um and it's a question of how much of that liability percentage albertans can get the companies to pay before the end okay we've got mark's perspective we've got drew's perspective i've made my point clear and and i i think if i were handicapping it i would say drew you're probably 60 40 they'll walk away or that's what they're setting up to do not sure how to mark uh, handicap marks i i would say 80 90 percent like, I think this is the, the we're, what we're seeing here is the end game of the industry. Uh, of course, nobody writes this down and circulates it as a memo or an email, to, you know, that we can get evidence of it. We have to infer it from their behavior, where they're spending money. You know, you can infer from that. And, and of course, as you rightly say, with coal and with in other oil and gas jurisdictions, we have precedence. This is how these companies have operated. And so it's not it's not impossible that they would do the same thing in Alberta. And we certainly see the conditions being set up for that. If Mark's, if Mark's uh, solution 
around the orphan fund is not if a government doesn't come in with enough backbone to do what he thinks is is should be done to solve this problem or come up with some other solution that does the same thing then we've got a we've got a, Alberta's got a huge problem well gentlemen thank you very much for this this has been a fascinating discussion i hope our our listeners have enjoyed it keep watching for other parts you know part 2 and part 3 and so on of this will uh, we'll be uh, exploring this issue in in uh, more detail, providing some case studies, and uh, and then um, and you know going down some other rabbit holes. So thank you very much, gentlemen, and really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me, Martin. Mm-hmm.